Welcome to Roses Radio, Voices Saving Lives. This podcast is presented by Roses in the Ocean, an Australian-based national not-for-profit that's been founded in order to change the way suicide is spoken about, understood and prevented. We hope that by presenting lived experience stories along with the insights and wisdom of the courageous people who share them, we will help to dispel some of the myths about suicide improving the suicide literacy of our communities and contributing to reducing the fear, discrimination and judgement that sadly still inhibits our ability to support others and seek help. At Roses in the Ocean we believe that most suicides are preventable and we need to be able to openly speak about suicide. So please, open your hearts and minds to the possibilities that a deeper understanding of suicide can bring to saving lives. Hello folks and welcome to Roses Radio, Voices Saving Lives. I'm Lane Stretton, I'll be bringing you this podcast today. She's a woman with a clear purpose and a passion and that is to change the way that we currently talk about mental illness and suicide prevention and she has a fierce reputation as an advocate. Her opinions are sought after by Beyond Blue, Sane Australia and many other mental illness sector organisations. Her name is Dee Backman-Hoyle. She's a director of the Private Mental Health Consumer and Carer Network. She is aware of both the human and financial cost of not reframing the conversation and increasing the help seeking by people living with severe emotional distress. Dee is an organisational development practitioner by profession, a conference keynote speaker, an educator, a workplace coach. However, she describes the most significant roles in her life as being a mother, a wife, and a newly minted grandmother. It's going to be great to sit down and listen to Dee Backman-Hoyle as she talks about her personal lived experience. Well, hello Dee. Hi Lane, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. I've waited a long time to um, have the opportunity to have a sit down and a conversation with you over the kitchen table as we are now. It's great to actually find the time where we can catch up. <laughs> Isn't that just true? I want to talk about something that you've described as the most analysed, thought-provoking and regretful minutes in your life. A tiny, small space of time. So, can I ask you what 120 minutes means to you and what is the story that sits behind that? Mm. 120 minutes so often feels like it goes so quickly and yet 
the things that can occur in 120 minutes are also really quite profound. The 120 minutes that I'm going to describe to you is the space between leaving my husband alive in bed to finding out via a phone call that he died. It was only 120 minutes. Just two hours of time. Just two hours of time. And for me, I just can't help but to have pondered over all of the things that could have occurred in that 120 minutes. You know, the the time that I said goodbye and I watched him look at my daughter and myself and actually look us in the eye and say goodbye and know that that was the last time that he was ever going to see us alive. And I've analysed to the nth degree, what did I miss? What didn't I see? What didn't I hear? Was there some sort of clue or some sort of insight that I just in the rush of a busy day just didn't see right in front of my face. So it was just another normal day for you. You, you got up, you did what you needed to do and you headed off to work. Yeah. 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 And then two hours later, you received a phone call. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was teaching and um, I got a call to come out of my um, class. And what that, were you teaching? Well, I was teaching um, tertiary education okay. and um, business skills in those days. And I got a call to come out of the class and it was sort of unusual because most people knew you didn't call me through the day. So when I picked up the phone and I heard a voice that I was really familiar with, my brother-in-law's voice, he, he really just in an accusing tone said to me, how did you leave him this morning? And I knew that the him was Andrew, um, my late husband, and I said, I left him sleeping in bed. Why? And he said, well, he's dead now, so you better get home. And it was horrendous. It was horrendous. I dropped the phone. These beautiful people I worked with on my staff came to me. It was almost like by osmosis the news got out and people just picked up bags and got things sorted and Mm, the next mm. thing you know I was in a car heading home. Someone else was driving my car home for me. With so me. it felt a bit like a fog. You just descended into a, a kind of a, a space where nothing seemed real. It was all a very surreal absolutely. moment for you. Absolutely. absolutely. It was sort of almost um, unhuman in ways. It was something I'd never, ever experienced as an, um, uh, a feeling, ever. I don't suppose, you know, we have conversations like that on the phone. You don't hear those words. Um, from somebody and delivered in such a um, what appears to be a uh, almost a cruel manner like just so brutal how did you respond yeah what did that feel like well the the challenge often and it occurred to me with families who are living with someone with a severe mental illness is that after a while after a while I think people get fatigued and they confuse attitude with illness And I think for my late husband's family, they felt that the time was up for him for the self-pity and his um, sense of lolling around in his own misery, which was essentially clinical depression, Yes. very deep and dark clinical depression. But that was really hard for them to understand. So 
I think it so was. They were, over it. they were completely over it. Yeah. They they had spent ten years watching from the sidelines and participating in their ability to participate. Um, coming in and out of inpatient units in psych hospitals, etc., and there was always the risk. Yet it was never going to be real in their minds, and it was. And I think it was sort of a bit of a little bit of deflected anger, more than anything, At in that you. voice. Yes, I think so. That if he was that unwell and that um, not able to be left alone, why would you go to work? Yeah. And yet, in my mind, uh, he was able to be at home. Mm. What's the nature of your relationship with him now, as in your brother-in-law? Like, What impact did that moment have on family relationships? Completely blew it apart. Right. And it's never recovered. Okay. Um, there, there is no relationship to describe or talk about. Um, and I think that this is one of the fallouts of, you know, different views and different understanding of suicide and the impact that it leaves behind for people. Yeah, it is. Um, can you tell me a little bit about Andrew? Take us back. When did you guys meet and, and what was the, the kind of history of your Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because... Um, you know, when I go back to the to the early days, we were both kids. You know, we were eighteen, nineteen. Um, we were we were definitely you know, what kids would describe now in the friend zone only for quite a while, and and we got into being a couple, and um, we married very young. I How was twenty one, and he was twenty three. Okay, and um, we were really good mates. We were good friends, and. When I knew him, um, he had undiagnosed at that stage bipolar one disorder, and so had you seen any behavioural nuances, any idiosyncrasies that indicated to you that he was carrying bipolar one? As well, I was during your uh, I, up to your relationship. Well, I was absolutely um, enthralled by the mania because the 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 highs were just incredibly fun to be around and exciting and. It was all about possibility thinking and big picture dreaming and, and that was who I was naturally. I didn't realise that there would be the down that okay. would come with that and it definitely came down to the same degree as the highs were high. Okay. Um, and you, uh, you were married, obviously. We were married and we were married for 10 years and I was the primary breadwinner because his illness created real episodes of being profoundly unwell and and I, I don't like the term carer in a relationship of a marriage it sort of has this power imbalance that goes with it I, I understand caring for your kids and caring for elderly parents but it's really different when it's your partner and um we we really went through some really tough times of scarcity and him being hospitalised for quite a while and when he was well, he wanted to be right back on top of everything immediately um, and there wasn't there wasn't a middle ground. It, it was all or nothing for most of that marriage. So you felt like you were either caring for him or explaining things to him? Yeah, calming down yeah. the energy or trying to help 
to find energy. Um, was it something that, so as he became diagnosed with it, was he accepting of his mental illness? Well, I think, I think what tended to happen was it was kept in-house, you know, it was kept in our house and um, it was explained away to family and friends originally as difficulties with work, you know, a bit of stress and strain around work. Um, it, He's not coping. No, that's yeah. it, you know, and um, don't push for more information. That's about all that could tend to happen. Um, the medication was a roller coaster ride because that can take so long to actually get to a point where it's of any help at all and sometimes it's not helpful and then you've got to discover that first before you actually come off that and try something else as well. So it was really tough, really tough. Were there times when he was um, hospitalised or was yeah. he in, yeah. in we, care? Yeah, we had um, about four hospitalisations in 10 years of marriage in the acute psychiatric setting, which for anyone who's listening to this and anyone who knows someone who's ever been in that type of environment knows that you don't go there because it's a place that you want to visit or you want to heal in, you go there to survive short term and become well enough and potentially safe enough to go back home. Did you ever believe that um, knowing of his illness, knowing bipolar and knowing what you know now, um, because you're a tireless worker in the suicide prevention area and the mental illness um, area, do you, did you ever think that suicide was a possibility as, as an option during that period of time or it never entered your mind that there could be the risk of something like that? I don't think at the time I did. Um, we had we had been already traumatised by his own father's death by suicide only years before and um, we were the ones who actually found his father sadly, and were exposed to that trauma of finding his father. And after that, we talked about it, and he absolutely promised me that that would never, ever be an option, that he would put his own family through. And that gave me that sort of false sense of security about, you know, whether he would or wouldn't do that again. Are you angry about the breaking of that commitment? Were you at the time or are you still now? I think there were a few things that occurred before the emotion of anger came in. I think prior to that, I was, prior to his death, I was actually scared because there were many occasions through his illness where he did not want to be re-hospitalised that he would be talking about finding somewhere safe for us to all go and that meant me and that meant him and that meant our little daughter at the time who was only four. And I kept asking him, where is the, where's the safe space? Why can't we be safe where we are? And over a period of time through the last um, phase of his last illness, um, I became increasingly worried about my daughter and I and our safety and whether or not he had the capacity, will, or would he ever hurt us? Yep. And would 
that be something I needed to prepare for. So the night before he actually did die, I slept on the floor next to my daughter. Someone had given us years ago as a souvenir a baseball bat and I know I slept on a mattress on the floor next to her with a baseball bat and I'd run drills in my head about how I'd get us both out of the house if if things went pear-shaped. And that was the very first time that I actually genuinely felt frightened and scared of the father of my daughter and someone I'd been married to for 10 years. And I couldn't tell anyone about that. That was just, that was my horrible secret that I was living with. Would you, on reflection now, be more open in terms of what his illness was to those around you instead of dealing with it as being, oh, it's a little bit of stress at work or it's he's just a bit overwhelmed by, you know, life circumstances at the moment. You know, we make up all those excuses and rationalisations and we make it easy for people to, to kind of connect to what it is that's going on. Would you do the same now, knowing what you know? Oh, definitely not. I, I think that, you know, it just leads to um, suppression of, of emotions and it leads to pressure in your, your immediate family to try and keep something so horrendously real as an experience quiet. Um, and when I say horrendously real, what I mean by that is two young people trying to stumble around and deal with life in general and on top of that support each other through an illness and wonder what you're doing. There wasn't the same level of conversation, there wasn't the same level of awareness and there certainly wasn't the same level of acceptance. The stigma was much, much worse than it is now. You mentioned that um, you would have loved to have had some answers, um, yeah. hence the 120 minutes being the most analysed period of time in your entire life. He left no message for you um, and you came up with a unique way of, I guess, dealing with that. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what that was? Yeah, I um, I came home and the police were there and the coroner was um, arriving and I desperately wanted someone to come up to me with an, a letter, a suicide note something that would help me process what had gone on and what had happened. And we looked and we looked and we looked and I kept hoping even up to weeks later that I would find something eventually. Oh, there'd be something. There'd be something there. And I never found it. So I decided that I would write the letter that perhaps would have helped me to find. And... And in writing that letter, I got to sort of emote and imagine some of the things that were going through his mind because I think what can really happen is when you're in pain, you put a focus on yourself and you say, how could you do that to me, to us? Um, how dare you? You know, I was really angry there for a while and, and then I'd move from being really angry to really sad and, and really annoyed that I'd have to explain it to my daughter. And um, for her to grow up without a father, I thought that was the most 
dreadful thing mm. that a father could do to a daughter and a child. Mm. So I put together this sort of um, letter and then, and as an extension to the letter, I put together my replies to the letter and I kept them sort of tucked away and hidden from everyone else but me to process and it helped me a little bit. Would you like to read that letter for us? I think people would be really interested to hear um, what you were thinking and I guess what you superimposed into what Andrew might have been thinking when he wrote to you. Mm. So the letter goes like this. My darling wife, I know if you're reading this note, then I'll no longer be with you. And I can't expect you to forgive me. And I am so sorry for all you are about to go through. I know when Dad took his life that I looked you in the eyes and told you that I would never do such a devastating thing to our little family. And I lied to you yet again. And I know that you know that I've lied to you many times before. I mainly lied to your face when you asked me if I was feeling okay. And I couldn't tell you the truth because the truth meant that I might have been put back into that hospital again and I just was never going to go back there again. I was scared and terrified about being readmitted because I didn't belong in a place like that. And, you know, they were really crazy people and I thought I was just a little bit crazy. But I want you to have a happy life and I know living with me like I've been is bringing you down and causing you so much unhappiness. And last night you slept on the floor in Jess's room because I did some things that scared you. And I know I was rambling on about us all going away somewhere that we could be safe and happy. And that was a place that was peaceful and without worry. And did you ever think that I could seriously hurt you and Jess well, you, ne- you really need to know that I just couldn't. I just didn't know how I was going to die and leave you both behind. And now that I'm out of the way, here is what I'd like you to do. Of course, do whatever you need, you feel you need to have to do. But, you know, you need to think about finances and you need to become more financially secure. And you'll be really unhappy that I'm leaving you also with some debts that maybe you don't know about. And there's not going to be any life insurance because I let the insurance policy lapse because I hadn't earned any money in a long time. And I don't want... And I didn't really think about any way that I planned to die. And they weren't going to pay if I died this way anyway. So I know you've been the one that's been working the hardest to keep things together. So anything that was mine, of course, is now yours. And you're going to find some bills and invoices that I racked up and I couldn't tell you about those either. And they happened in a a last sort of part of my manic episode that I had and I was really totally off my head and I just went on a crazy spending spree. So make sure you sell the motorbike and all my tools Get a good price if you can because that might help you out a bit.
And Jess will be too young to remember me and I figure if I'm going to die now would be better than when she gets a bit older. And I need you to tell her how much I loved her and that she was always my little princess and tell her that I want her to have a happy life. But don't let her get tattoos because you know I hate tats on women. And have no doubt, and I have no doubt, that you're going to be snapped up by some bloke pretty quickly. So here's a tip. Go for a bloke with some money who isn't as crazy next time so you won't have to work as hard as you have been. Tell mum that I'm really sorry, but that, but now I'm with the old man and neither of us are going to have to worry her or stress her out anymore. I know she's going to be really, really angry with me, but, I, but I'm dying and I've died knowing this. I've been thinking about killing myself for a long time and I decided that today was going to be the day. And I love you and Jess and know that both of you will be better off without me. And I'm feeling a pain that I can't describe. I just know I can't live with this pain anymore. It's taken over my whole body. It's unbearable. I just want to get rid of the pain. I hope one day you'll forgive me. And I love you. Andrew. How does that feel to read that again? Well, it feels sad. And I guess one of the challenges is that with grief, grief for anyone through any loss is hard. But one of the things with the grieving process with the loss to suicide is that it's, for me, a pain that everyone expects you to recover from, but it's sort of like a permanent bruise that just sits in your body. And every now and again, something happens to brush up against the bruise and you feel it again. It never goes away. It never is reconciled. It wasn't that person's time to die. They weren't taken by force of nature, accident or illness, technically, but it was. Mm. It was a mental illness. Mm. But it's, it's something that I wish people would understand doesn't have a use-by date that you should get over. Mm. You have a tattoo? Yes. Why'd you go out and get a tattoo? The tattoo is, um, and my tattoo, and I do not normally come from a family of women with tattoos. I am the only woman in my family with a tattoo, and I'm sure my mother terribly disapproves of my tattoo. No, it's on my wrist, and it's a semicolon, and the semicolon is a symbol of my life is not over yet campaign, which is a time to pause, time to stop, time to breathe, time to reconsider differing options. And the semicolon um, campaign is the semicolon sits on the pulse point of your wrist and that if another person with that semicolon sees you, then you're a sort of friendly person that they can approach and they know that your life has been profoundly impacted by suicide or that person has survived suicide. My daughter has that tattoo and I have that tattoo, 
And we know we're always connected because it is a pulse between us that represents a tragedy that occurred in our life. Do you believe that Andrew feared going back to being readmitted to a health facility? You talk about it in your letter, so clearly that was something that you are acknowledging that he was potentially thinking. Had he said that to you? And if so, what, what was he afraid of? He was terrified. He was absolutely terrified. Psychiatric wards, even if they have the most supportive and caring staff, are frightening, scary places. They are places of, very often for suicide and suicide attempt survivors, a containment and a safe place to keep people in a locked ward until you become well enough to go home. And I would argue that people would say that it's hard to get well in a place like that. And yet it's hard for families and friends to support someone when they're so profoundly unwell as well. And so in my mind, the future would include healing centres, not holding places not such places as a, of isolation? No, okay. no. Because if someone's feeling isolated enough as it is, the last place they need to be is somewhere that isolates them even further. Yeah. yeah. And it's getting more challenging for um, people who work in that sector because of the red tape that they're required to actually complete these days. Once upon a time, maybe people could sit next to someone, spend time with them, chat with them, And I still think good staff members and others who have the right intent want to do that, but they're very much under-resourced and it's hard for them to to provide that level of care and support. Yeah. So you wrote some responses. I did. You wrote wrote this letter and um, and that was, I'm assuming, quite cathartic for you and it was good to get that out and on the table. Yeah. Yeah. but you wrote three responses that I know of, all a little bit different. Um, tell us about your response to the letter. The responses to the letter were a direct impact by my emotions and my thoughts and how I was how I was feeling definitely at the time. And, you know, they range and they rotate <laughs> in rapid succession sometimes. <laughs> Um, so there are, yeah, there are three that are my favourites. And tell us about each one of them and, and... So the first one, which is my first response, is me feeling deserted, me feeling left behind, me feeling, um, not cared for. And it goes like this, Andrew, you stupid prick. Do you know how angry I am with you? Did you think it would all be as easy as you disappearing off the face of the earth, you selfish bastard? Have you any idea how devastated we are? Jess has no real concept of death at four and she keeps asking when her daddy will be home from heaven. She is terrified to go to sleep because some do-gooder told her that dying was like going to sleep with the angels and not waking up again. 
How the hell did you ever expect me to work three jobs to pay the bills and raise our daughter and deal with all the things I had to deal with? If you were alive, I'd want to kill you anyway. It's very um, angry, isn't it? Oh, like yeah. Your language is... It's, it's very angry. Um, yeah. And so you had moments of really feeling... Abandoned. Just abandoned and angry about what he did. Furious. Yeah, yeah. Furious. I had massive bills, remembering I had found the bills by now. I couldn't stay in our family home because the debt that I thought we were living with was probably double in reality. Mm -hmm. I was in a home that didn't have a certificate of occupancy, so I had to become a builder-owner and complete building the house. So you were building a house at the time? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And we, I, it was raw plasterboards. So I had to actually subcontract in tradies and get 180 foot in the old language um, retaining wall put in. With no money? No money. No money. I got bridging finance from the bank on the proviso that they held a caveat over the house to sell as soon as I got the um, the certificate of occupancy. Yeah, there'd be a lot of people that I think can identify with that that anger and that feeling of uh, of abandonment and, and frustration. But you have other times when you're maybe a little more philosophical um, about things. What what are some of the other responses? Well, the next one is short. And it just simply goes, you know, we could have worked through this and I don't know how to have a life without you and all is forgiven, just come home. And you really feel you could have worked through this and and if so, what would it have taken to do that from your perspective? Well, hindsight's a really interesting friend at times. I don't know the answer to that, to be Mm. honest. Mm. I really don't know the answer. And what would it have taken? A whole lot more honesty, a whole lot more support and um, a reality check that it just is very hard to support someone without support yourself. So your own personal um, feelings of security and safety and you being well... Um, you would say to people, that's that's first and foremost what you need to focus on because if you're not well, yeah. if you're not safe, then how on earth can you give to another what it is that they need? Yeah, if you're um, emotionally depleted, physically exhausted, financially completely under the pump and you've got responsibilities that no one else can take off your hand and you're really not being a hero, they're reality for you, you're no good. It's not a nice place to be and it's not a good life to live. It's survival mode. You've got a racing heart. You you just feel it in your body constantly. You're in panic mode all the time. Yeah. The third response. Yeah, the third response goes like this. Yeah. You know, there was a choice. And there's always a choice. And you could have kept living instead of dying. 
You know, we're all guaranteed that we're going to die one day. Why didn't you die when nature or fate intended you to die? You had a choice and you could have lived and created another life. And we do have choice, don't we? Yeah, I believe we do. Yeah. I believe we do. I believe that if people are feeling in such a a deep, dark, sad, disconnected place, if they only knew the people around them would do anything That's right. to keep them with them mm. and that they had that ability to know that a simple conversation, one more conversation could have kept them alive. Just putting their hand up and saying, I'm not coping. Yeah. Is, is really all they need to do. Yeah. Um, and, you know, for those who are, uh, who, um, are maybe noticing um, others around them who might be struggling or might be in crisis, the courage to ask the question, um, how you doing? Are you okay? Have you thought has suicide crossed your mind? Is a, is a really intense and tough question to ask, but it's a necessary question, isn't it? Yeah, I think it is. And I think... And I think that we will all broach the subject in a way with the language that feels comfortable for us, but I think we've got to be direct. I have concerns when people lead the question, such as you're not thinking of doing anything stupid, are you? And 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 I probably would have said that. Yeah. I would have said that. And really what I wanted to hear back was, of course I won't. So the question was more for my need than to truly understand where they were at because I think I just wanted to hear, um, no, don't you worry, instead of I need to make you worry a bit more now because I need to share with you that I'm not in a good place and I'm frightened and I'm scared about what could happen. So for those who might be listening to this podcast who are in that space, what would your advice to them be? I I just would like you to just, if you could close your eyes and just imagine someone at some point in your life that has had a really meaningful connection with you and maybe they're still in your life, And just for a moment, imagine that they were having the conversation with you, even if they were not in the room with you. Put their face into your mind. I very much understand that so many people who are having suicidal ideation find it so hard to even go there in their thoughts. But it only takes a minute of a thought to hold you for just a little bit longer And not to make you feel guilty or not to shame you, but just to say, what if they responded in a way that was what I wanted to hear? Mm. It doesn't matter what financial situation we're in. It doesn't matter how screwed up the cash is. It doesn't matter that our relationship feels like it's going to hell in a handbag. It doesn't matter that we haven't got all the answers It doesn't matter what matters is us and we're still here. You've thrown yourself into work in the suicide prevention area and also in the mental health area. Why don't we um, talk a little bit about what you're doing 
um, just at the moment in that area? Yeah. Well, I think for many people, and the language is really interesting, we talk about people who've had a lived experience. And a lived experience of suicide is someone that has lived with the thoughts of suicide. And interestingly enough, so many of us have those thoughts. And those thoughts can feel natural and part of the way we consider our life. And they don't need to mean a death sentence. They can be a thought, just a standalone thought. And then there's a thought that perhaps moves you towards some action and um, people who attempt and survive the attempt. And so there's the people who have thought through suicide, the people who have attempted and survived suicide, the people who are bereaved by suicide, so they've lost people that they love dearly, they've lost friends, they've lost family, and the effect on people is massive. So my goal and the goal of many of us, I know, Lane, is that we want to make a little bit of a dent, just a little dent in the messaging that can happen. We perhaps can't change the whole world, but we can share that story. So I'm involved in research in suicide prevention and I'm hugely involved in getting people who have had a lived experience to put their voice at the table and be seen as the experts of experience or the voice of experience. So what would you say the primary thing is that the voice of experience offers to the industry? What does it bring? Well, I definitely think for the mental health sector it brings stories and in the stories are insight. I think the sector is absolutely swamped with information and information without insight is just more stuff. And the insight comes from the emotional feeling. The insight comes from the reflection of an experience and the insight comes from what you'd want to share with people through the experience. So giving people the gift of being able to share their story is really, really powerful. And I think I think through that there is also the duality of helping you heal a bit as mm. well. Mm. We always finish our podcast with a, a couple of questions. Um, and uh, the first of those is what do we need to do or what do we need to change in the way that society deals with suicide? Well, I think that, you know, for society at the moment, we are so inundated with so much fearful information and news that we hear the term suicide and we hear the statistics of suicide and we wonder what can one little person do to make any difference in that horrific um, occurrence of suicide And I guess one of the most basic things that every single one of us can do, even if we never meet someone who's in dire crisis, we can just stop and become more alert and become better listeners and suspend some judgment in the way that we view people around us. And the people that we live with every day and the people that we get to connect with on a very regular basis instead of just seeing them as figures coming and going past us, that we stop and take a deeper dive as to how are they travelling? How are they? And extending the are you okay to include because I actually do care and I do want to be here 
if you need me. So I think every single person, every lay person who's not professionally trained, we could all do with a bit more connection, a bit more hopeful view about what's possible in the world. For me personally, Lane, I turn off a lot of the news because I don't think it's helpful. And and I'd rather spend my time in real time with real people than watching other people's reality, which is very sad. Mm. So that's perhaps one thing we can all do. We, we you know, in, in not putting our hand up and asking for help, we actually remove the privilege of humanity, don't we, being extended to us. Yeah. So we have to have the courage to reach out and say, I'm not coping and give you the privilege Yes. Of, of doing what you do best, and that is helping and supporting me in whatever it is that I'm going through. Absolutely, absolutely. And there is no guarantee as far as your reaction. Um, sadly, I've been exposed to suicide several times, suicide attempts several times since, and the shock and the pain doesn't lessen, mm. but you get better at returning back to some normality if you could call it that and my my dear friend Jackie often says to me but what is normal D it's a setting on the washing machine if we ever try to achieve normal we're going to be sadly disappointed we'll be in the spin cycle (laughs) and sometimes it feels a little bit like being in a spin cycle doesn't it yeah the second question that we ask is what is the message and you've, you've touched on so many amazing messages and we're very grateful for that but if there is a message you'd like to put out to those that might be grappling with the idea of suicide or grappling with uh, someone around them um, uh, having suicide, what would that be? There's three things. I want us to think about stopping referring to the statistics of suicide. Um, I want us to think about potentially the knock-on effect of what that might mean when we compare it to the road toll. People who lose people that they love in their life regardless of the death grieve. So one isn't necessarily competitive with the other. Statistics should never be described for those types of losses. So in my mind, we have to think about every single day the beautiful souls that are contemplating whether they have a choice to live or die. And I want us in our own little spaces and ways to give them good reasons to choose to live. And I want as a society that we don't fall into the trap of a mental complacency that suicide is a natural part of a human condition. And this can happen when we hear too many numbers and we shrug our shoulders and flippantly say that's sad, isn't it? And that every single person, regardless of who they are, our friends, family members, people that we hold near and dear to us, they are part of who we are and we are all interwoven together. So when one of them dies, a piece of us dies as well and we erode the fabric of our life. And we are better off building the fabric to life Mm. rather than making the fabric weaker. So many um, lovely sentiments there. Dee, it's uh, been wonderful to just get this 45 minutes 
to spend time uh, talking with you. You've brought so much um, wisdom and experience um, and so many practical things for people to think about uh, all over the world. We're very grateful for that. We're very grateful for the work that you do in the suicide prevention area. Thank you for coming on Rose's Radio today. It's absolutely my pleasure. Thanks, Lane. In conclusion, we remember those we have lost to suicide and we acknowledge the suffering that suicide brings when it touches our lives. We need to provide for all people a future that inspires and empowers individuals and communities and is filled with hope and meaning. If you or someone that you know needs support, you should contact Lifeline, a phone and online crisis support network, the Suicide Callback Service, which provides professional counselling for those who are affected by suicide. Men's Line Australia, or the Kids Helpline, which works with children and teenagers from age 5 to 25, offering phone, web and email counselling and information for parents. In the event that you might like to assist the work of Roses in the Ocean and their Voices of Insight Speakers Hub, through speaking engagements in the local community, then please make contact with Roses in the Ocean on www.rosesintheocean.com.au or 1300-411-461. Hey, thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to bringing you other inspiring stories from those with a suicide lived experience.